Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is Alberto Violdo. Alberto Violdo is a medical anthropologist who has been studying the shamanic healing practices of the Amazon and Andes for more than 25 years. He is the founder of the Four Winds Society, which trains modern shamans in the practice of energy medicine. He directs the Center for Energy Medicine in Chile, where he investigates and practices the neuroscience of enlightenment. Over the course of two decades with the shamans in the jungles and high mountains of the Andes, Violdo discovered a set of sacred technologies that transform the body, heal the soul, and can change the way we live and die. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, Alberto. Hello, Jacob. Good to be with you. Um, So I wanted to start out just by talking a little bit about your own personal story and what has led you to uh, the research and the work that you do integrating um, ancient teachings and wisdom of shamanism into contemporary perspectives. You know, my story, part of the shamanic training is that you, you erase your personal history So I can tell you a little bit of the events of my youth, and I was uh, born in Cuba, Mm. left when I was a young boy, came to the U.S., got a Ph.D. in psychology, directed a neuroscience laboratory at San Francisco State University, looking at the mind-body interface and how we, if studying whether we could create psychosomatic health Mm. and not just psychosomatic disease. And that's what led me to the Amazon to work with the shamans who didn't have MRIs, who didn't have technology, but who only had the power of the mind to create health, to kill or to heal. And I spent the the next 25 years working and studying with the Andean and Amazonian shamans, and then spent about 10 years studying the Tibetan shamans Mm. and the sources of Tibetan Buddhism as well as the the interface between the Indian subcontinent and the Tibetan region, Mongolia and Tibet. That's incredible. I want to come back to that connection with India. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you maybe, what are some of the kind of experiences that you had, or, or maybe just one or two, that really kind of showed you um, uh, how compelling this mind-body psychosomatic connection was within the traditions of shamanism? Well, my earliest experiences in shamanism actually happened in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I, the difference, in the Amazon, there are a lot of sorcerers mm-hmm. as well as shamans. And the difference is that the shaman has a lineage and is dedicated to healing, whereas the sorcerer has the same base of knowledge, the same knowledge base, but he uses it for personal gain instead of for right. the collective good. So I saw how sorcerers were able to harm someone. And I remember asking an old, an old sorcerer, um, you know, sorcery is rampant. It doesn't happen only in the Amazon. Corporate America is full of it. Envy, jealousy, anger, rage is a form of sorcery. And then we have all of the self-sorcery that we do, all of the beliefs that we have that are destructive. Yeah. But I remember... Yeah asking this old man, how do you hurt someone? If, you, if you're going to hurt someone, how do you hurt them? And he said to me, it's so easy, Alberto. First, you get married to them. No, I'm joking. <laughs> you don't, but you need, to find a, you need to find an entry point. 
So you track the field, you take your rattle and you call on their spirit, you summon it in front of you. And I got to witness this. And then you find what's in the energy field. It's an information field. So if cancer runs in the family or heart disease runs in the family, there's a bundle of energy with that information on it. And he said, you just tweak that. Give it a little bit of power, a little bit of energy. And it's like, like double-clicking on a computer program on your screen. Suddenly it takes over. Mm. So you tweak that imprint, and two weeks later, that person has a heart attack. Or two months later, they have a cancer in their body. And then I asked him, well, how do you heal someone? He said, it's the same thing. You find that bundle of energy, that imprint that has the coding for cancer for disease in it, that's usually wrapped up in emotional trauma. That's why emotional healing is so important. And you clear the imprint from the field. Mm. So the same techniques that are used to heal someone can be used to harm someone. Right. That's interesting. So, um, you know, especially right now with the, the popularity and the growing popularity of, of shamanism, particularly with the the kind of psychedelic tourism that's happening in Peru, for example, with ayahuasca. Um, do you think that there's a lot of confusion um, in these tourists between like are, are a lot of people thinking they're finding a shaman and in fact they're finding a sorcerer? And, and, and if that's the case, how does one discern between a shaman and a sorcerer? Well, the first place you've got to be careful with sorcery is when you go see your doctor. Mm. Because if you get a medical diagnosis, that's a curse. Basically, you're no longer being, being treated as a person, you're being treated as a disease and as an illness. And then the second place is when you go to your psychotherapist. Because frequently you will end up doing their healing through you mm -hmm. so that they're working within their own wounding and they want to come and find, unless they're, they're really refined psychotherapists, frequently they will look for their own healing through your problems. So you want to work with a psychotherapist that's, you know, you know the story of the five blind men and the elephant. So you want to work with a psychotherapist who's been around the elephant a couple of times and is not projecting their own stories onto you and the same with the shaman today there's a lot of there is a lot of psychedelic tourism around the world and you can buy the medicine in the market in peru and the fact that you can buy ayahuasca and shake a rattle doesn't mean and give it to people doesn't mean that you're a shaman or you're you're, you're a healer you're basically offering psychedelics to someone and that's very sad. It's kind of tragic because there are some very good medicine men and women. And I still work in Peru, but when we do work in the Amazon, we work only with a women shaman mm. because the men are abusing their medicine way too much. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. So I want to back up just a second because I think what you're something really interesting and powerful that you shared about. Um, the way in which Western medicine, Western psychotherapy is, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I feel the idea is that the curse is in, in sort of the naming of something that disempowers you from finding the resources for your own healing within. Is that part of what this idea of, of, of 
Western um, uh, psychological pathologies and Western um, uh, uh, diagnoses, is that essentially what it's about that makes it a curse? And is there still some positive utility from the shamanic perspective to Western medicine? Now, Jacob, you got to remember, I came from a neuroscience background. Right. And, and I'm a medical anthropologist by training, but I'm also a shaman. I spent, you know, 40 years working with the shamans. And if you spend 40 years cutting wood in a carpenter shop, you become a carpenter. Yeah. So for me, it's important to bridge both the ancient wisdom and the modern science. Mm -hmm. Now, the, the contemporary Western medicine is based on 14,000 different diagnoses, 14,000 different ways of being sick. If you go to Tibet, Tibetan medicine only has 404 ways of being sick, and 202 of them are spiritual in nature. Hmm. But for us, for us, all of illnesses are physical, physiological, right. chemical in nature. And the problem is that we end up treating a disease and we don't end up treating a person. Mm -hmm. So in America, we don't have a health care system. We have a disease care system. And then you, you want to know what's wrong, and you have doctors that specialize in organs, the cardiologist, the neurologist, the GI docs, and then doctors that specialize in illnesses, you know, the cancer docs and the heart disease docs, but nobody specializes in the whole body and the whole human that includes the spiritual, that includes the emotional. Shamans understand that 90% of illnesses are emotional in nature. You've got to reconcile, heal the emotions. And the steps for doing that first is forgiveness, which we all know is so important. But then beyond forgiveness, you've got to practice gratitude, even to the people that hurt you. In the, and I remember a patient of mine saying, how can I be grateful to my uncle who abused me sexually for three years? I said, you're not grateful for the abuse. You're grateful to spirit for the lesson that spirit offered you. And you vowed that you were never going to learn that way again. But you got to take it beyond forgiveness because that still means that something happened to you, that you were a victim. Mm -hmm. You step into power. Healing happens. In the West, so much of medicine is medical malpractice because we're giving people a diagnosis and then treating the diagnosis and not helping that person recognize that what they're going through is a calling from spirit to become a better person or to acquire an even higher level of health. Hmm. Hmm. Which calls into question like a, a completely um, interconnected worldview that, that shamanism offers. And, and so, you know, we were talking a moment ago about this kind of popular shamanism, um, you know, that's that's being encountered in in places like Peru and others. Um, uh, but you, you know, you talk a lot about this particular community of of shamans called the Laika in your books, and I just wanted to talk about them for a second, and 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 maybe in the context of 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 what the worldview is that supports all of the things we're talking about, like you know, energetic interventions and and all of that. Well, Jacob, first let's really be clear that psychedelic shamanism is not shamanism. Okay. It's psychedelic. Yeah. And it can be 
deeply healing and transforming. And there are a lot of places offering ayahuasca and many people are having deeply transforming experiences. But that's not shamanism, that's psychedelics. And in the Does shamanism of... use psychedelics ever? Is that a misunderstanding that, that shamanism employs psychedelics in some of its practices? Only in very few places and only very selectively is when you're going through your training or initiation or in certain healing processes. But there are parts of the world that don't, you know, they that are reliant on meditation, for example, yeah. or on contemplation or on fasting and but you want to go to those states of consciousness where miracles can happen. But to do that, you first have to repair the brain. Now, the beauty of ayahuasca, for example, since we're talking about psychedelics, is that it's almost identical in chemical structure to serotonin, a neurotransmitter. And serotonin will repair your hippocampus, the region in the brain responsible for new learning. It'll repair it in six weeks. So much of what's happening in psychedelic shamanism is people repairing their brain chemically so that they can have a new experience. And that new experience is great if you, know, if you are sitting at the dinner table with a great spirit or if you have an experience of deep bliss. But if your brain is broken, like most people's brains are broken, because of the stress that we live under and the stress hormones, cortisol and adrenaline, then you won't be able to hold that experience. You'll remember a fantastic meal with God, but you can't remember what you had for dinner. Mm. Yeah. And you so, got to go back next Sunday for another ayahuasca session. Mm. So um, in uh, you've been talking about shamanism as being the backdrop to Tibetan Buddhism, for example. And then, you know, before we started our interview, you discussed um, how you'd written a book on the Yoga Sutras um, and and kind of their shamanic inheritance. So this, you know, is a departure from some people's understanding of shamanism as being something specific to the Americas, particularly South America. So when when you when we talk about kind of the universality of shamanism across world cultures, what are the features that we're talking about? What is it that makes that um, that demarcates shamanism as shamanism, or what is it that makes a tradition shamanistic? Is probably a better question. That's a really good question. What are the sources? Where does it come from? What does it look and taste like? Shamanism developed among Paleolithic peoples that also had a Paleolithic diet. Now, the Paleolithic peoples were nomadic hunter-gatherers before we settled into agricultural communities. So shamanism is not hierarchical. It's pre-religious, it's not religious. It exists on you having a personal experience of your sacred journey of spirituality, but it's not organized religion. It's the foundation of religion, but it's not, religion then becomes hierarchical, mm -hmm. and shamanism is horizontal. And it's based on your understanding of the invisible world, that there's a world of energy and wisdom that's, ac that's accessible by the individual, but that's not dependent on the sutras or on a body of texts, mm -hmm. but that you can access directly 
by attaining certain states of consciousness where you commune directly with, with wisdom. Now, in Buddhism, this is called the, the Pranyaparamita. This is the mother of the Buddhas. This is that ocean of bliss, wisdom that we can all access. Hmm. But the minute that that gets translated into the sutras, see, in, for example, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are three levels of teaching. And they say that the Buddha taught for the simpler people at one level, for the more advanced at another, and for the very advanced at a different level. So the most simple teaching is the sutra, the level of the sutra, the yoga sutras of Patanjali, the Buddha sutras. And the sutras say, this is how you treat snake bite. If a snake bites, you treat it this way. And first of all, of course, try not to get bitten by a snake. <laughs> here's, here's how you treat it. And, um, and then be careful you feel your perception. The yoga Patanjali says, be careful you don't confuse a rope for a snake or a snake for a rope. The second level is not the sutra, but the level of tantra. In tantra, you're transforming energies. In tantra, you say, well, a snake bit you. How do you transform venom into nectar? And that's shamanism. Shamanism says, how do you transform your deep wounding into your source of wisdom and compassion? Transforming venom poison into nectar. How do you heal the five poisons? How do you transform them into their wisdoms? And then at the highest level in Tibetan Buddhism, you have the level of Sokchen. And Sokchen is the, is the ultimate wisdom. And Sokchen says, what snake? What poison? This is all your perception. But of course, if you are not at that level, and you go around saying, what snake, what poison, that's just your ego talking. And then you get bit and you get sick. Mm -hmm. so, so this is, the shamanic works at this level of tantra, transforming energies. And this is the, the real art of the shaman, is taking that which might live in your field as an illness, not as cancer or as heart disease, but as a bundle of toxic chi or toxic energy that will manifest in according to whatever information you have in your field, what runs in your family. We call that genetics, you know, your predispositions. So if you can clear this bundle of energy and turn it from toxic chi into nectar and into compassion and wisdom and gentleness and kindness, then you don't have to process it somatically through your body. Mm. This is at the essence of the shamanic traditions. And it's helpful to understand this. And then you have the tools. You can have a rattle or a feather or ayahuasca or a ritual. But the deep understanding is that and I'll give you the secret to that, is that in the West, we think that creation was completed in seven days. And all that was left was the naming of the plants and the animals. The shamans say that on the seventh day, the great spirit said, I created the whales and the eagles and the elk and the deer and the butterflies. Aren't they beautiful? And now you finish it. You complete it. So our task is to co-create with spirit. Mm. And that's, 
the deep understanding of what the shamanic practices are about. Mm. Wow. Well, it certainly feels like, you know, in this current moment, which I, I want to talk about in a, in a bit, um, we seem far away from that kind of global dream of really living in alignment with these these principles. But one of the things I loved that you said in an interview that I listened to um, is that spirituality is inevitable. And of course, you you distinguish spirituality from religion, as you did a moment ago. But you you said something to the effect that spirituality is an is unavoidable at a certain point, which I think will be kind of a surprise for some people to hear because they think, oh, spirituality is sort of my choice and whether or not I'm a spiritual person is just, you know, predicated upon, you know, my my personal disposition and all of this. And it seemed like you were suggesting that it's almost a biological necessity at a certain point when one engages um, in particular practices or a particular trajectory of experience. So can you talk a little bit about that for a moment and, and, and how, um, according to you, spirituality is unavoidable? Much of what we consider spirituality is comfort food, is candy. Mm. It's the place that I go to to feel good, to feel warm inside, to feel in communion, to feel connected. Much of meditation is, is that, finding quieting the mind. But quieting the mind is just the first step in meditation. Then comes exploration. Much of what we call awakening is soothing our hurts. Now for the shaman, and you can, if you go back to Patanjali and Nagarjuna and the sages, the Indian sages, they say that what that you've got to wake up it's essential, but then after you wake up, you can't keep on waking up. You got to grow up, and then after you grow up, which is integration, integrating the awakening. After you grow up, then you've got to show up mm. and become part of the solution. So the deeper spirituality brings you face to face with yourself, and it brings you to to ask those questions that you find in, embedded in the Eastern traditions, which is, who am I, where do I come from, and where am I going? And if you ask the question, who am I, long enough, you get to the point of saying, well, who's asking the question? Deep inquiry. And deep inquiry, the way the shamans in the Americas do it, they have a rite of passage called the Kawak rites which are the awakening of your vision, of shamanic vision, where you can see the luminous nature of life. But to awaken your shamanic vision, you have to be willing to see everything, beginning with yourself. Mm. Your most horrible sides, your beauty, your violence, the fact that Hitler lives within you, and the fact that you've got to heal that, that you cannot point the finger and say, look at this, president or person that we've elected, how terrible they are because they live within you as well. You have to hit, this is what Mother Teresa said when she went to India. She went to heal the Hitler within her. So once you do that, once you're seeing your darkness and your light, and some of us are terrified of our light, then you can go in the medicine path. Then you can go in the spiritual quest deeply. And this is inevitable. Because at a certain point in our lives, we begin to go, who am I? What am I doing? And why am I doing it? 
<laughs> mm. Wow. So um, you said that most people are afraid of their light. It seems like we'd be some people would be surprised to hear that because they think, well, that's what I want to affirm. I want to see my light and I want to ignore my shadow. So what do you mean when you say that um, many people are afraid of their light? Well, let me let me go back to what you just said. When we ignore our shadow, we project it onto others. Yeah. And then we bump into it in others. We end up marrying it. We end up finding it with our bosses and our children and our partners. And so we have to own the shadow. This is what that process of awakening the shamanic vision is, is reclaiming the shadow and finding the treasures that are hidden in it. Now, our light is terrifying to us. Because we tend to think, well, when I am strong enough or healed enough or clear enough or advanced enough, I'll be able to make a difference in the world. I'll be able to dream the world into being with spirit, that co-creation of those of beauty. And that's terrifying. So we keep working on ourselves and we become addicted to working on ourselves. When that becomes an apology and an excuse to our responding to the calling that is being offered to us at this critical time in history to become co-creators. Terrifying. Yeah. This is the scary part of the journey, is that, wow, I, can, I am dreaming the world into being all the time, and not just my little world, to feel a little more comfortable and a little safer, but the entire planet. Well, you talk about in your book, The Heart of the Shaman, um, you go into a great uh, bit of detail about the difference between the daydream, the nightmare, and the sacred dream. And so since you are talking a little bit about dreaming the world into being, I'm wondering if we could talk about that for a moment. And um, it seems like we're living in a nightmare. Um, but according to the logic that you explore in the book, nightmares happen as a result of a daydream, right? Like a daydream turns into a nightmare, if I'm if I'm correct in, in what um, I've read. So what daydream has turned into a nightmare, the nightmare that we're living in right now? And, and what kind of sacred dreaming would be necessary for us to move? Or even what kind of practices would be necessary for us to move to a place beyond this... Um, this place of utter division, particularly in the United States, you know, our recent election has shown that we're just as divided, if not more divided, than than we thought we were before. We thought this election would be, you know, a rejection of of what has been happening, but really it's just further illuminating this profound division. So, can you talk a little bit about, you know, that from the perspective of 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 this kind of dream architecture? Yeah. I like that word, the dream architecture. Very nice. Yeah. So this is the, uh, the, the, the dream that has gone bad is the dream of progress, mm. of greatness. Now, we perpetuate that. We have assimilated that. We're looking to become our greatest self, to become superhuman, to become enlightened. This will inevitably turn into a nightmare. So... This is what happened in our world today, that we thought that we could keep growing, progressing, increasing, becoming increasingly more comfortable, smarter, and wealthier. And we see that progress has a great price, particularly 
in developing countries and in the, the child workers that are manufacturing our goods in India and the ways that, that we ignore our own children and the redistribution of wealth that needs to happen in the world today. So the um, many of the people that are ready to make political changes want to pay more taxes. They want to redistribute the wealth, not to weapons, but to food and to health programs and to children. And so this is the kind of value set that is not pro-progress at the expense of the many. Mm -hmm. The benefit of one at the cost of the many. So this is a dream that was the American dream, that you could make it, that you could lift yourself up by your bootstraps, that you could succeed uh, while everybody else was failing. <clears throat> so this has turned into a nightmare because it has happened at the expense of the rest of the world. And the fact that in the United States, we can print money, that means that the rest of the world has to finance it. Our comfort of living, now there's a big adjustment happening at this time. But 30 years ago, Jacob, my mission, and many of us 30 years ago, was to spread the bad news. That we were, we were coming to an apocalyptic moment, and we're in it today. Yeah. Our mission today is to spread the good news of what's possible, of what's a sustainable dream, of what is a dream that is a sacred dream that will not turn into a nightmare. Now, at a personal level, I can share some of my, which you don't want to hear, personal love dreams that a year later turn into a love nightmare. Mm -hmm. And we've all, had, we've all had those, that perfect partner that we felt really gets us. And now look at what, so this is the nightmare we're living in today. And our calling is to dream a sacred dream that is inclusive, that includes all people and all races and includes women and includes uh, people of all orientations in life that's inclusive of the grasshoppers and the whales and the creatures in the ocean that's inclusive of the entire earth. And this begins with how you envision the world. And let me describe how this happens because we believe that we can use our intention and visualization to create what we want, to create our reality. But that inevitably will turn into a nightmare. You can do that if you're an Olympic athlete that I've worked with, where you can envision a perfect run down the mountain and yourself winning the gold, then you will do that. But not for any longer than a few minutes. You can envision a parking space and you'll get that. The Western approach is to begin with number one, with me, and then maybe my beloved, and then maybe my family, my village, and then if I it's not too much work, the earth. The shamans say, if you want to dream the world into being, the sacred dream, use your intention. Begins with the entire earth. Dream the entire earth into being, and then all of nature, and then your valley, and then your village, and then your street, your family, and you're the last one in the sequence. Mm. But the amazing thing is that then you get everything. Wow, that's beautiful. Um, so um, one of the prophecies that you discuss in um, a couple of your books is this 
idea of the Pachakuti or the Great Upheaval. Um, you can correct me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Um, but would you? Do you think that we're in the Pachakuti right now? Are we in the midst of the Great Upheaval from that shamanic perspective? And um, and if we, you know, particularly when it comes to the environment, you know, many um, environmental scientists have said that we've passed the point of no return. So. <clears throat> amidst all this ap apocalyptic talk um, where it's hard to imagine ourselves not going exti extinct if we keep up this work, what is beyond this great upheaval? Like, is there actually, what can we place our hope in if we actually have um, reached a point, the, the point of no return at the level of our kind of planetary equilibrium? Yeah, this is a really good question. Thank you for asking that. The role of the shaman has always been to throw a grappling hook into the future and look at future possibilities and summon a high destiny for humanity and for the earth. The Tibetans have been doing this. They, um, they anticipated the, the great crisis that uh, Tibetan Buddhism and, and China and Tibet have been in. And also the American shamans, they predicted this time that they called the Pachakuti or the great turning over of the earth, the start of a new humanity. And the prophecy says that humanity has died, that humans as we know them have become extinct. Mm. And there's a new human being born in the planet today. Now, we're living in a time of ecological crisis. During ordinary times, evolution follows the, the framework and the laws of Newtonian physics, which is gradual, incremental. During times of climate collapse and global crisis, like we're living in, evolution goes quantum. It follows the laws of quantum physics, of quantum jumping, where it's not the next generation that becomes a new human, but we do, we are. So we are the ones that we've been waiting for. We have the opportunity to grow a new body, to become a new human, to grow a new body that is disease-proof, to upgrade the quality of our luminous energy field and become homo luminous. Mm. This is the core of the prophecy. Homo luminous is the enlightened bodhisattva, that we can become in this generation. You and I, all of us, we have the possibility. But to do that, we have to go through an initiation process, which is the putting into the fire everything that is dysfunctional and awaiting and, and being willing to spend time in that in-between moment where we don't know what the destiny, where we're going to live or die, where we are in limbo. We don't know the outcome. Being willing to hold that that terror and that awe of the possible birth of a new human. That is us. So this is the opportunity that we have today. And yes, we are in the middle of the Pachakuti, of the great upheaval. We're not, sorry, we're not in the middle. We're at the beginning of it. Hmm. We're Gosh. waiting. <laughs> yeah, this is just a warm-up act. Oh, goodness. Uh, um, so where do we start then? And I'm wondering if... Um, you know, we could talk a little bit about, you know, we're talking about all of this. We haven't talked so much directly about kind of some of the practices, the shamanic practices that might 
help usher in, you know, this new body. I know you've ta- you've explored many of them in your work, um, but I did, uh, I w- have been reading one of your recent books, Soul Journeying. And so I'm wondering if in our final minutes, we could talk a little bit about that and how that might be of service at a, at a time like this, at the beginning of the Pachacuti. Yeah, we, we need to recover our soul, our collective soul. And I'd love to share ceremony with you. Remember that I come from a brain science background and my interest right now is to grow a new body. And that's the title of my most recent book. How do we become the new human? Not just enlightenment become, being a spiritual process, but a physiological, biological process. How do we grow a new body for the new human that is disease-proof and that heals differently and that ages differently and that dies differently or doesn't die? Let me give quickly mention that there are 40 million species in the planet, 40 million different kinds of creatures. And only three of those don't have death programmed into their DNA. And that's humans, whales, and dolphins. The, every other creature in nature, the minute that the female is not reproductively viable, nature eliminates her. So that humans are the only ones, together with whales and dolphins, that reach menopause. That you can have, you can become a grandmother, because every other species is not taking part in this experiment, which is an experiment where we have no death program in our DNA, uh, where we can become infinite, where we can regenerate the body, where we can grow new bodies. But to, this is an experiment being conducted with the three species that are the most intelligent species that have the biggest brain to body weight ratio in the planet. It's an experiment in intelligence. The experiment is a critical one where N, which is the number of people in the experiment, is equal to one. You know, my experiment is called Alberto. Yours is called Jacob. And, and it's and if you don't take part in this experiment in intelligence, which is what we call spirituality, consciousness, if you don't take part in the experiment, then you get to be part of the control group. And the control group is that great bell curve of humanity is what we call statistics that are really not pretty. And uh, say that at the age of 85, one out of two people will have diagnosable Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be part of the control group. Yeah. So yeah. This, this is the experiment we're taking part in. And to take part in it, we have to change. Now, as... Uh, in brain science, we know that the, you cannot change your mind unless you change your brain. And one of the ways that we change our brain besides jungle ceremonies is to do a fire ceremony. We, the brain changes through ceremony, which is why every culture in the planet has ceremonies. And I'd like to share one with us yes, that please. is very appropriate for this time. And that you can do at home. I prepared it with um, with a candle. And remember that we lived in a world that was lit only by fire for a million years. We gathered around the fire. We learned how to use fire long after we 
sorry, we learned how to make fire long after we started using fire. So it was a sacred task. This the keeper of the fire was the most sacred task in the village. And we made love around the fire, gave birth, helped people die, and had ceremonies around the fire. Fire is embedded in our DNA. And if you take a toothpick or a small stick, and you can blow into that stick, we call this a death arrow. Everything that you're ready to leave behind, all of the dysfunctional beliefs, limiting beliefs, ideas about how you will live, how you will grow old, all of the, those things that are dying in, in humanity around us that we have embodied and we need to release to become the new human, we blow it into the fire. And I invite you to do this at home. And then you bring that stick, a toothpick or a little hibachi stick to the fire. And let the fire release the light that was bound into those beliefs. Those beliefs could include a diagnosis. They can include a heartbreak or a heart pain that you're suffering. It can include the anxiety that we're all feeling at this time. And if you want to take it a step further, very carefully, you can track your field and see where the fire needs to burn at your chakras or in your field, the toxic energies associated with that belief structure. And so much of it is in our heart chakra, very carefully. And do this at home. I'm doing it daily during these times of tremendous sorry during these times of during these times of tremendous change i'm doing these fire ceremonies every night and i invite my students my clients to do it at home so that we can change our brain and change our minds as a result thank you that's beautiful alberto so it just it looks like you just need a candle and a toothpick or a small stick um, and uh, and uh, we'll release this video for those who want to watch um, Alberto perform the that uh, that ritual. Uh, well, Alberto, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you about so many um, important uh, shamanic perspectives. And um, as we close, I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share anything about uh, any upcoming workshops or things that you are working on that you'd like to share with the audience. You know, at this point, uh, Jacob, I'm, I really am not interested so much in promoting my next book or my next program, but really in promoting world peace and promoting a healed earth. I invite you to, at some point, to put into that fire ceremony your own name mm. so that you can become a mystery onto yourself. Mm. And this is the process of rebirth that we're going through as a humanity becoming a mystery onto ourselves to discover a new human today in the world. We have a lot of free resources in our website at the4winds.com of how you can support them nutritionally and with probiotics and because it's a body, it's a physiological process and a brain chemistry process as well. So take the big leap. It's This is the time we've been waiting for. All right. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Alberto Violdo. Alberto, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you, Jacob. Blessings.